Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. I take preaching sometimes too seriously, and um, I just wasn't satisfied with what I had this morning, so I reorganized, reworked my whole sermon an hour before I came here to preach. So I think it's going to be fine. I think we're going to get to our destination just fine, but you may want to fasten your seatbelts and your pews just in case there's turbulence along the way. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Heard of confirmation bias? That's gathering evidence for what you already believe. I knew it. Have you heard of hindsight bias? That's when after something happens, you convince yourself you knew it was going to happen. I saw it coming. What about attribution bias? That's when you're highly confident of your ability to figure others out. I can see right through him. I can see right through her. But not confident at all in others' ability to figure you out. You don't know me. Each bias is different, but they all have this in common. They make you think that you have more clarity than you really have. You might call each bias artificial intelligence because it makes you smarter or feel smarter than you really are, more confident than you should be, having more control than you really have. Now, that's not all bad. I mean, to take actions and to make decisions in this confusing world requires some good measure of confidence and trust in what you think you know and what you think you should do. We can't move without feeling that way sometimes. However, we know that too much clarity, too much certitude can get in the way. (laughs) Not my clarity, of course, not my certitude. I'm talking about every one of you. I'm talking about everyone else. Uh, There's that attribution bias again. A mature Paul sees it, not just in others. He sees it also in himself. Hear what he has to say at the end of that chapter about love from 1 Corinthians that is read at many weddings. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now, I know only in part. 
But then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Those of you who grew up with the King James Version of the Bible will remember this translation. Now we see in a glass darkly. Well, which is it? A mirror or a glass? A mirror or a window? I didn't even check the Greek to answer that question because I don't want to know. This is like the two ways the Lord's Prayer is prayed. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Why should we have to choose between the two? Sin is both what we owe to God and do not do and what we do and should not have done. Well, in the same way, let's not choose between mirror and window because they are also two sides of the same true coin. If you look at a fogged mirror, it is your reflection that is hard to make out. If you look through a glass darkly, it is what is outside of you that is hard to make out. Others, the world, God. Paul had no reason to know that later studies would back up what he learned in In Life Training. These studies have revealed what Paul came to know about himself and others, that we tend to have a different understanding of how knowable others are as opposed to how knowable we think ourselves to be. That is, most people tend to think our mirrors and our windows are clear and other people's mirrors and windows are dark or fogged. Thinking that, we easily feel justified in drawing conclusions about others, but easily feel victimized when others draw conclusions about us. In summing up these studies, Catherine Schultz puts it this way. I've quoted her before. She is the author of Being Wrong. She says that we tend to think of other people as crystals. Everything important about them is refracted on some visible surface. While it may take a while to really study and understand all the different ways the sides of the crystals present themselves to us, with enough study, you can get to know that crystal pretty well. Meanwhile, we view ourselves as icebergs. What is visible to other people is just this little part above the water. Most of what we are is hidden below the surface. I've just described again what attribution bias is all about. You can see that this bias is not only in error, it is fundamentally unfair. It holds yourself to a different standard than you hold others. Because I am overly confident about who I am, I am overly confident about who you are, and that can make me judgmental. Because I am confident you don't really know who I am, that makes me confident that you don't really know who you are either. You can't see where you were wrong about me. You can't see where you were wrong about you. You can't recognize your own faults. Here again is the amazing feat of this bias. It can make you feel judgmental and feel like a victim at the same time. I see you and judge you. You think you see me and judge me, and that offends me. 
That bias can really mess up a friendship. It can mess up a marriage too. It can mess up faith in God. When we are so clear within ourselves about who others are supposed to be, including God, we can give up on them. This might be a good time for the pastoral counseling that can be offered by the Apostle Paul. Paul has often not been given much credit for his pastoral side. He has been treated, you see, like a crystal. People have read verses of his writing out of context, and those verses have become surfaces of a crystal that make people think that they have Paul figured out. That surface seems harsh. That surface seems sexist. That surface seems negative. That surface seems judgmental about things like sex. But when Paul is read within the context of his time and within the context of his writings and within the context of his life, one learns that surface readings of Paul just won't do. Our passage, for instance, has wonderful pastoral advice, especially when you read it in the context of his life. Let's begin with his childhood. Or better yet, let's begin with his childishness. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, he says. And Paul is not just talking about when he was a child in his parents' home. He is talking about when, even as an adult, he was childish in his thinking. He was childish in his acting. He once was a young man whose window and whose mirror were both very clear, giving him much more clarity than he really had. As a young Pharisee looking at a mirror, he was confident of his ability to keep the law of God in all the ways the Pharisees thought were important. And looking out his window, he was equally confident in his condemnation of those who fell outside the law of God. Like Christians, they committed clearly the same sins of the one they claimed to follow. They worked on the Sabbath using compassion as an excuse. They didn't follow the dietary laws that Jews have followed for generations, dietary laws that not only set Jews apart from pagans, but kept them healthy from many diseases. They didn't follow the holiness code in many ways when the code didn't make much sense to them, and the men refused to be circumcised when that had been the defining sacrament of the people since Abraham. Paul's clear mirror and window gave him such confidence that he became a dangerous man with a clear conscience. It's the kind of confidence two people can have when they try to destroy each other in a divorce. Or the kind of confidence that ends a friendship when a political argument then defines how they see each other. Or the kind of confidence that can destroy a community and even a nation when entire groups of people can define, demonize, and then cancel each other out. The kind of confidence that can cause someone to give up on a church or on God because the church or God doesn't fit their clarity about what that church or that God should be. Paul had such clarity that he had the moral cover he needed to take on the work of persecution. 
We don't know how far that persecution went, except that Paul himself described it as violent. He also had confidence to travel that road to Damascus, taking a sword that he intended to use. And then, well, his window darkened. His mirror fogged. Paul was stopped in his tracks by the one who was crucified. He was stopped in his tracks by the Jesus who overly confident Pharisees before Paul, Pharisees that Paul admired, had questioned and then quarreled with and then opposed and then helped get arrested and killed. Paul was carrying a sword, but he could see that the one who stopped him had his hands and ankles already pierced. And this crucified one asked Paul, Why? Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul suddenly saw that his own clarity was his sin. His fogged mirror reflected at least this, his attribution bias, which overestimated his own righteousness and overestimated others' sin, had turned him into someone who would even murder who evidently would even murder God in God's name. And at that moment of recognition, he goes blind. But he's because he's going to have to learn to see himself and to see the world differently. Three days later, his sight returns and he begins to leave behind his childish way. There's around a 10-year gap between Paul's Damascus experience and his first missionary journey. This is, I think, a season of maturing, a season of self-examination and reassessment that leads to a greater humility about what he knows and doesn't know and what he is capable of and what he is not. And by the time Paul writes his letters to the church in Corinth, he realizes that what is true when he looks in the mirror is also true of others when they look in the mirror. You'll notice in our passage that he uses the first person plural when he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, or if you prefer, now we see through the glass darkly. The greatest pastoral care Paul can offer when two parties become judgmental about each other while feeling victimized by each other is this. Remember, your window is also dark. Your mirror is also fogged. Do a thought experiment. Think about who you were 10, 15, 35 years ago, go as far back as you need to to realize that you were wrong. Some of us are so stubborn, 10 years ago looks just fine. Pick that time, and it's easy to see today where you were wrong. Not about everything, but about a lot of things. And you can see or remember that things were crystal clear to you then, things that need revision now. Now consider this about what you are crystal clear about today and others and about God. In 10, 15, 35 years from now, don't you know that you're going to be seen as wrong? If not by yourself, if you're so stubborn, at least by others who are watching you, you are going to be seen as wrong. 
Not about everything, but at least wrong about something, or at least wrong about something in everything that you believe to be true. Whoever is that idiot, that racist, that manipulator, that enabler, that hypocrite, that crusader, whoever you think you are completely right about, you are also wrong. Those pro-life people who don't care about children after they are born. Those pro-choice people who don't care about the unborn. Those Democrats who are socialists. Those Republicans who are deniers. Those rich people who don't care. Those poor people who are lazy. Those Christians who won't believe science. Those agnostics who have no morals. Those conservatives who are way too political. Those progressives who are way too political. That God who lets bad things happen and who can be such a bully to some people, including his own son. Whatever you think you are right about, you are also wrong. The bad news, you see, is that we are human, which by definition means that we are wrong. We can't help but see ourselves in a mirror dimly, and we can't help but look at others through a window darkly. Because we are limited. We are finite. We are wrong because we are not God. And being wrong is not our sin. There is so much we don't know and so much we have to learn that of course we're going to get things wrong about the world, about others, about ourselves. That's just being human. That's part of the adventure and wonder of life. The source of our sin is is this, is when we think we are right and forget that inevitably we are wrong. But here's the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's Paul's pastoral advice again. The good news for us is this, that God meets us in our humanity. God meets us in our wrongness. God so loves us sinners that he meets us in our sin. And what does he do? He doesn't then teach us what is true so we can then from now on be right. He teaches us how to love. He teaches us how to love ourselves even though we look in a fogged mirror. He teaches us how to love others even though we see them through darkened glass. For reconciliation and peace in our life and in our world, the way forward is not final clarity, which is dangerous. The way forward is love. Love that is gracious, not condemning. Love that is patient and does not give up. Love that is kind and not cruel. Love that gives the benefit of the doubt and also allows for change of mind and change of lives. Love that is curious. Love that is courageous. Love that bears and believes and does not end. If you didn't recognize it, that was the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. To give up on clarity but remain stubborn in love, that is what Paul learned to do and what Paul encourages us to do. Or as Norman McLean says in his masterful novel, A River Runs Through It, which is about a father's love of a son who remains a mystery to him. 
We can love completely what we cannot completely understand. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.